This is the Game Day on Rocky Top Podcast, episode 164. Joel Hollingsworth and Will Shelton here with you once again, this time to celebrate the Vols beating the Missouri Tigers 24-20 and doing it with stats that suggested a lot more domination than the score. With the win, Tennessee gets bowl eligible. They're sitting at 6-5 and five overall and 4-3 and three in the SEC East. And all they have left is one final regular season game against Vanderbilt coming up this weekend and then the bowl game. The weird thing is that um, that 6-5 and five overall record, it looks kind of like our preseason expectations uh, for this team. But if you pop open the hood, uh, it doesn't look anything like what we were thinking. Um, you've probably seen this a thousand times on Twitter already, but I'll document it here as well. The, the, the team started the season 0-2. Then they went one and four, and then they improved to two and five. Uh, but since then, they've put together four wins in a row to get to six and five. And in the process, they've taken care of the second tier of the SEC East in defeating South Carolina, Kentucky, and Missouri head to head. And all they have left is that wobbly Vandy team. Um, and even if they uh, lose to Vanderbilt somehow, they're still going to finish third in the SEC East. So that's one preseason goal that's uh, kind of been taken care of. Um, and there's still um, some room in the ceiling there. So there's a lot to talk about. So let's get started with uh, Jarrett Garantano. <clears throat> Garantano was 23 of 40 for 415 yards, two touchdowns, zero interceptions. Just a really, really great performance, and uh, especially good to see considering all that's happened to that kid this season. Uh, Will, how good was it to see Garantano do what he did Saturday night in Como? So I think Jarrett deserves every ounce of praise that we want to throw his way, so I don't want to minimize everything everyone is saying about him. But I, I do want to add in addition to Garantano's spectacular individual play, I think it was a great sign for Pruitt and these guys going forward that they let him throw the ball 40 times in this sort of below freezing, lots of shoot yourself in the foot opportunity uh, moments kind of game. And they were running the ball okay. I thought they weren't running the ball great, but they were, they were doing okay. I was really surprised that they had the green light that Pruitt gave Cheney or, or however that works, that they had the green light to say, yeah, let's throw it 40 times <laughs> to, to go back to not just everybody wants to go back to the quarterback sneak at Alabama. I get that's that's a big talking point. But to me, go back to Mississippi State when Maurer gets the concussion and they bring Garantano in and they don't want to throw like at all right yeah like that, that second part of that mississippi state game they took one shot down the field to ramel keaton that worked out well uh the big play by tyler bird at the end of that game was a great play but it, it wasn't a particularly that throw wasn't a big ask for garantano he made the right read he put it on the money but it wasn't a a incredibly difficult throw or anything so even at the start of this run you know garantano's coming in with let's not try anything and then against Missouri, uh, it, it was like, let's try everything. It, it was like a uh, that pass interference call in the first offensive play of the game for Tennessee. It was like a, a pitcher who, uh, is against the first batter, he's got a 3-2 count, and he throws a pitch on the corner, and if the umpire calls it a ball, it's a, a, just a bad tone setter, and maybe he struggles. But if the umpire calls it a strike, you start getting in the groove. And when Tennessee got that pass interference right away and set a tone that some of the stuff that Missouri likes to do isn't going to be tolerated or it's just going to it's going to look a lot more obvious against Tennessee's great wide receivers, I think from there they, they just greenlit that whole thing. So uh, I think there are a lot of big-picture things to really, really like about Tennessee's passing game on top of how – individually spectacular Jarrett Garantano was in a, in a way that just, you know, confidence just increases over the course of the game. We are way too comfortable with this guy on third and long. I mean, <laughs> you know, they, they get third and 21 and it's almost laughable. Like, well, maybe we'll get this. And they almost did. I <laughs> yeah. mean, it, it's, it's ridiculous <clears throat> that how good he has been on third and long situations last year and this year. 
got to work on that, you know, whether he comes back. I hope he does come back next year. If he comes back next year, you're not going to have Jennings and Callaway. I don't want to write a post-game piece next year where Tennessee loses a game because they got in a bunch of third and eight, and, and those guys weren't around to make a lot of those plays. But, I, I mean, yeah, just a, just a spectacular effort for Garantano, for those receivers, for everybody in the passing game. Yeah, speaking of the receivers, um, so, you know, it wasn't Garantano alone. It was uh, Jennings, Callaway, but not only those two guys, Palmer had an awesome night just pulling down some uh, terrific, uh, terrific balls. Um, all those guys, they forced pass interference calls all night. They uh, snatched 50-50 balls out of the air like they were actually 100% all hours. Um, so all three of those guys, especially Palmer, I think if, if it weren't for Jennings and Callaway – uh, being there and having the games that they had, we would we'd be talking about him like crazy today because he just he looked like those guys. So we're you know I know that you have these deep memory banks in volunteer lore. So where do you think this trio uh, sort of ranks among awesome trios in uh, Tennessee wide receiver U history? And if it's not three, maybe we need to go down to two. But are are there three together that have been? as good as what we saw last night? Well, I, the things that come to mind are instances where your one and two are so, so good that three can really catch a defense by surprise. This is like uh, Justin Hunter and Cordero Patterson in 2012, which turns out also made Zach Rogers a, a pretty yeah. good college football <laughs> receiver. I forgot all about and, him. I left him. Right, but that's what I'm saying. Like, Zach Rogers is not going to the NFL, you know, but um, – he as, as far as I remember anyway, uh, but in that offense, and they also had Michael Rivera in there who did go to the NFL. Um, you know, there's a there are situations like that where guy number three uh, can can sneak up and get you. Most famous individual example is Bobby Graham in that 2001 game against Florida, where Tennessee had Dante Stallworth and Kelly Washington, and then Bobby Graham caught like seven passes in that game because, and they had Jason Witten. And, and a third wide receiver really could, could get loose underneath. Palmer, I tweeted this last night, Palmer, his highlight reel at this point looks real good. I mean, yeah. we're, we're entering nervous territory with him of, hey, could you be a little less spectacular <laughs> because we could really use you on our team next year? And let's, let's not get any even inklings of, man, I got a great highlight film and maybe I should give a shot at the NFL. So I think in terms of your number three receiver really doing spectacular things, I'm not sure that we have seen something that can't be explained any other way. We've seen freshman 2010 with Tyler Bray when you had Gerald Jones and Denarius Moore and then Derek Rogers and Justin Hunter were freshmen. So they did, they, they were great as freshmen Everybody that played with with Peyton Manning, I, I mean, look, there's a year where where Tennessee's number three wide receiver is Peerless Price, so you know the, those all those guys that played with Peyton certainly all looked really good and and all that good stuff. But uh, in terms of individual playmaking and being at a point, I think now where when the ball goes out there, I, I don't have much of a preference in terms of you know confidence in the guy to make the play. So, yeah, I mean, th this, is, this is something new. Here again, I really hope a lot of these conversations are going to lead to a point about I really hope Tennessee catches a meaningful opponent in a bowl game because I want to see, we want to see now if they can do this against a team uh, that, that has a number <clears throat> next to their name. But I, I mean, Missouri's defense all year was good enough yeah. to have a number next to its name. So, uh, I mean, just sensational what those guys did. And credit Cheney for... Uh, Garantano's catching a lot of heat for his inability to throw a, a, a two-yard swing pass, and, and maybe rightfully so. But they didn't get overly concerned with trying to get tight ends and running backs involved. When you got three guys that are that good, just get them the ball, and, and that's what they did. So all those receivers that, that you mentioned, I remember all them. And I know you go back uh, much further than I do, even though I'm older. I'm a newer fan. Um so what gave Tennessee the whole wide receiver you, um, you know, nickname and, and aren't, you know, Pickens and what, whoever those guys are, I mean, aren't those guys, didn't they have some, you know, super trios too? 
So, uh, yeah, you would have had really with um, uh, Tim McGee was on the team in 1985 to beat Miami in the Sugar Bowl. Tim McGee went on to for a long NFL career with the Cincinnati Bengals. So you had him and you had some good individual talent like Willie Galt. I remember him from uh, I was a Bears fan. Yes, there you go. So he was on uh, like Reggie White on Tennessee teams that weren't as successful in terms of wins and losses but obviously a great talent. So you had individual guys like that. To me, when I think of it, it's really, it has to do a lot with starting with Andy Kelly in 1989 and 1990 and 91. Tennessee's run of quarterbacks in that stretch. You had Andy Kelly for three years. Then you had Heath Schuler for two years. Then you had Peyton Manning for four years. T. Martin for two years. Casey Clawson, plus or minus some injuries for... Uh, basically three or four years, and then Eric Ainge for three or four years. So, I mean, you uh, other than guys getting hurt or that weird 2005 year with, with Ainge and Rick Clawson, you just had a quarterback that was going to give you every opportunity to succeed at Tennessee. So Pickens is at the start of that and, and still may be the best individual receiver. If you're talking about Tennessee receivers like making the Pro Bowl in the NFL, Pickens is still at the, at the front of that group. Uh, a legitimate Heisman candidate at, at Tennessee in 1991. Um, but Pickens played with Alvin Harper, who was a first-round draft pick of the Dallas Cowboys and, and made big plays as a number two target in a, in a lethal Cowboys offense with Troy Aikman and Michael Irvin and those guys. So you had guys that had that level of college success and NFL success. Pickens with the Bengals never had team success, but a lot of individual success. Alvin Harper played on great Dallas Cowboy teams. Uh, and then after that, you had um, the Heath Schuler duo was Corey Fleming and Craig Faulkner were the two, the top two guys, neither of which really made it big in the NFL, but they, they put up a bunch of points and, and a bunch of yards there. Uh, and, and then the Manning group, you know, the, the duo with Joey Kent and Marcus Nash, those guys have all the records because they played with Peyton Manning. Yeah. But, you know, the, there again, you've got Kent and Nash in 95 and 96 uh peerless broke his ankle or his leg in the orange and white game in 1996 uh and so he wasn't part of that group in 96 but then in 97 you had marcus nash peerless price cedric wilson another nfl receiver who was your number three guy 98 uh, jermaine copeland was in there too once they decided he wasn't going to be the quarterback um then you know you you had stallworth and kelly washington and uh and all those guys going forward so uh, you you all throughout that run, Tennessee always had two guys uh, that were either just putting up incredible numbers in college and or getting a shot at, at the NFL and turned in some some pretty solid NFL receivers. Pickens, Harper, Peerless Price was a solid NFL receiver. Cedric Wilson, kind of an underrated NFL receiver uh, for a long time. Dante Stallworth played for a while in the league. Uh, Witten, of course, is a tight end, one of the best to ever do it. So uh, it, it was just, you know, that's my recollection is great individual players like Galt and McGee in the 80s, followed by just a long string of those guys where every year at a time when offenses were scoring fewer points and, and fewer teams were throwing it around as much as Andy Kelly did. Uh, you know, Andy Kelly broke all of these Tennessee passing records. He just had the misfortune of being followed by Heath Schuler and Peyton <laughs> Manning. So they all got rebroken. But what Kelly was doing in, in 89, 90, and 91 on teams that won two SEC titles, uh, he's he's throwing the ball all over the place. And because you had Pickens and Harper and those guys, it was really working. So uh, we haven't seen, again, since then, we've seen great individual talent. Robert Meacham is probably the last, and, and Jason Swain, probably the last kind of duo in that long run. Um, and then you had, you know, just, just in these last 12 years where we've struggled, even when you had... Gerald Jones and Denarius Moore that put up a lot of yards. Certainly, uh, Derek and Justin Hunter, and then Justin Hunter and Cordero Patterson. Um, and and four years or three years ago, Josh Malone and Jawan Jennings was a really good one-two punch with Dobbs. I mean, that, that's a group that put up a lot of yards. But in the Butch Jones offense, the number three wide receiver was always the running back. I mean, that was true long before you had uh, Kamara in there who was the number three wide receiver on that team at 16. So Butch's offense never lent itself to who's the number three guy wide receiver because they threw so many passes to Rajon Neal and Jalen Hurd and Kamara and John Kelly. 
So, I mean, this sort of thing is, is more of a Jim Chaney thing, the likes of which we haven't seen going all the way back to, like we said, Zach Rogers uh, being that number three guy. But again, t- to me, all credit to Zach Rogers, but that was more about, you know, Justin Hunter and Cordero Patterson. I think Justin Hunter and Cordero Patterson are better college football receivers than Callaway and Jennings. But I think the trio that Tennessee has right now might be collectively better than Hunter and Patterson and, and Zach Rogers. So for them to even be in that conversation, I mean, yeah, it's, it's credit to Palmer for putting himself in that group with those other guys. I'm going to go back and check this uh, when we're done recording, but uh, I think you just mentioned every Tennessee wide receiver for the past 20 years or 30 years, maybe. It was amazing. It's interesting, too, that there are some guys, because of Tennessee's reputation, like David Martin, okay? David Martin (laughs) was a receiver. Well, but, like, (laughs) he he played in 2000 in the year when Clawson was hurt, and they're playing, like, A.J. Suggs and all that stuff. He still got drafted and turned into a decent NFL tight end. That Tennessee was so good, especially at skill positions back then, that just by nature of being at that position for Tennessee, an NFL scout was going to take a look at you. And so there were guys like David Martin that weren't necessarily statistically much of anything at Tennessee that still got an NFL contract because they were a wide receiver at Tennessee. So, uh, yeah, I mean, lots of lots and lots of opportunity. Lots of guys, you know, Marcus Nash that played with Manning, he was a first-round draft pick. And and for him, it was still, when he got to the NFL, I think it was, you know, okay, a lot of this guy was that he was Peyton Manning's number one wide receiver as a senior. But, yeah, I mean, everybody, same for running backs, really, in that era, in that era too, that everybody that started for Tennessee at that position almost certainly was going to get a look from, from an NFL roster. So, uh, you know that play last night where Jennings catches the ball? It, like the five-yard line, there's two guys between him and the end zone, and he pauses for just a second. You know you know which one I'm talking about? Yes. Okay, so you're, you're sitting there, and when he pauses, you're thinking, well, that's not a fair fight. He's getting to the checkerboards, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, is that – I is mean, it, yeah, that's, that's kind of what it's turned into with him. Yeah, he's, he's, he is the man, right? So the thing that uh, – that's what makes that hit on him by uh, Nick Bolton. Oh, so amazing. I mean, that Juwan Jennings doesn't go backwards, right? He just doesn't go backwards. Uh, but Bolton, he actually made him go backwards. So my question to you is, which is more impressive, that hit by Bolton on Jennings last night uh, or the one by Eric Berry on Noshan Marino back in 2010? And you have to take your big orange glasses off for this one. Oh, no, I, I think it's last night because of proximity to the end zone. I mean, that, that hit saved a touchdown. That's true. Uh, and so all credit to the Barry hit on, on Marino, which was kind of a bang-bang. You know, Marino gets bounced outside just before that hit. And then he was obviously very much not ready for, for Barry. The thing about that hit, too, with Barry is it created just a great photograph. Yeah. Of, uh, and I haven't seen – I mean, there may be a great photograph of the hit from last night, too – uh, but but it created the the photo where it looks like Barry had punched him in the face, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so uh, that that amps up. Let's take nothing away from Eric Barry, but I, I think simply because that hit denied a touchdown, even though they got in uh, on the next play or the play after that. Um, yeah, the, yeah. It, it was it was shocking to me when it happened. Yeah, that's the thing. See, there's this video out there. If you go looking for the Barry uh, Marino hit, you find this two minute video by a, a Bulldogs fan. Right? It looks like it's a Bulldogs fan. It's got a dog's name in it, but um, it's two minutes or, or about a minute forty five of Noshan Marino running over the entire SEC, and so. But then it, it ends with uh, "Hello, uh, meet Eric Barry," and then it, it goes backwards. So uh, it, I think, I think maybe our memory of that, <coughs> excuse me, is that that was kind of shocking at that point too. But that that is last night. What was so amazing about Jennings is like you see Jennings that close to the end zone, he's getting in. Uh, but he or it's at least a draw, right? Like he's going down in place, kind of like the the uh, Eric Berry Tim Tebow yeah. uh, flash, and you know that it is at least 
uh, you know, stop the fight. There's no contest. There's no winner or whatever. You know, J Jennings was on that play. Jennings was clearly the loser. Yeah. All right. So um, you hit on this a little bit earlier, but I wanted to get into it a little bit more. That that was a really good defense that we just put 500 yards on. They yeah. were they were uh, ninth in the nation, second in the SEC in total defense. They're allowing only 298 total yards per game and. We had five, what, 520-something? So, 530 before they took a couple knees at the end. They finished with uh, 526. Okay. So w what in the world has happened to the, to the Tennessee offense? Is it Jim Chaney? Is it, uh, is it Garantano? Who, we, and you can hit on this. We, we, we didn't talk about it when we were talking about him earlier. He says he's coming back. Uh, that's a good thing, right? Uh, or is it the offensive line? Uh, what, do, what do you think has happened? Uh, offensive line pass protection last night, A++. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, he's still, again, the, the weekly line on this podcast, he's got a broken thumb. He's still got a broken wrist. You know, he's still out there with that thing on his hand. And it's like you forget about, uh, other than when he's handing the ball off to the right, when he's throwing, I just forget he has that. And so uh, a, a fantastic job by the offensive line protecting him on a night where it's human nature that he's going to be more fragile. And I just think they did an outstanding job with pass protection. Um, against a team just, that has a reputation for, for growing, you know, pass rushing defensive ends on campus in a, in a lab somewhere. Right. Oh yeah. Yeah. And Odom and those guys, you know, have been around there a long time and, and know how to get after the quarterback. So yeah, I, I thought that was spectacular. Garantano, I thought physically watching him, I, I thought in the third quarter, he had a noticeable spring in his step. I think he was feeling really good about what we were seeing. I think that's why some of his mid-range throws were a little high. I think he was just feeling really good about what was happening and had a lot of confidence in, in the way he was firing the ball out there. He, he still is firing the ball at 130 miles an hour when he throws a two-yard swing pass. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean... Some of it is just I think he is playing with more confidence than we've ever seen. And for those that want to compare it to the Auburn game last year, I thought the Auburn game last year was more about individual receivers making spectacular plays one-on-one. -on -one. Um, those guys made a lot of spectacular plays last night, but I thought the throws were much – the degree of difficulty and, and the diversity of the types of throws, the types of routes he was completing last night – I thought it was way better than what we saw against Auburn uh, last year. So, yeah, I mean, it, Cheney, uh, prove it for the willingness, again, to, to give them the green light on that. Um, having the confidence and, and trust in your receivers to just go out there and do it and having that kind of pass protection. So, uh, yeah, I mean, he's, he's saying, hey, I'm a Vol. Uh, that seems like fantastic news for us. It would give you a chance next year – um, you, you could redshirt, not only could you redshirt Harrison Bailey, you could also redshirt Brian Maurer next year. Uh, and, and, you know, again, you could play these guys in four games, but you, you could specifically, if everybody's healthy, you can redshirt Maurer because you didn't get to do that this year. Trout has already redshirted. So he could, you know, be a guy that's available in every game and you redshirt Bailey. And then you go into 2021 and let Maurer and Bailey and Trout to figure it out. Uh, and, and, you know, that's kind of, uh, that's kind of the idea. I don't think Garantano, even if he throws for 800 yards against Vanderbilt and in the bowl game, I just don't think he can go pro. I, I just, I, he didn't have enough consistency, enough good work to do that. I think he needs to come back. Um, and I think for all of the incentive to transfer and go somewhere else, it's like, now we're finally seeing the consistency between quarterback and offensive coordinator start paying off. So to have that, you know, assuming Cheney's not going anywhere, to have that next year and and to get Palmer back and to have most of that offensive line coming back, uh, that's awfully enticing. And you're going to have a chance. We've talked about this before. You know, remember Garantana was on the team in 2016. He redshirted that year, so he was around. He was on the roster for beating Florida and the battle at Bristol and all that stuff. So. He knows as much as anyone on the team now and more than anyone who would be on the team next year what it's like to be in top 10 games uh, or what it's like to at least be on the sideline for top 10 games. So uh, 
didn't get a chance at that this year, but might have a chance at at, at least some ranked versus ranked kinds of matchups next season. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think you like your chances with Garantano at this point next year far more than you like him with trying to figure it out with Maurer or trying to figure it out with a true freshman quarterback. One thing we uh, did not see in Saturday's game, uh, the Onos. Um, I don't know if it was just me, um, but, you know, even even when and while the game was close, I never really felt like they were going to do something stupid to let it slip away. Even when they, in fact, did something stupid, um, I just never felt like it was going to slip away, that they were going to figure it out. And it wasn't until later that I realized that I had sort of lost that feeling. And, you know, good riddance to that thing. Um, <laughs> but uh, I don't know, is it just me or or is that been mostly gone for you too? How does that relate to your experience with the Onos in the Kentucky game? Um, I felt it much more then. There seemed me too. There, there were there were more pressure. Uh, there was more pressure there, um, but uh, you know, even then, it was diminished. I think. Did did, I, I did you feel it strong in Kentucky I, in, against Kentucky? Yes, absolutely. When they fumbled, you know, you didn't. Mauer started, and you just didn't feel great about things. Kentucky comes out and is running that weird offense off the bye week and all that stuff, and you get down 10 points. And, and we hadn't seen Garantano really do a, a whole heap of a lot uh, other than break his hand against South Carolina. So um, I think that uh, yesterday against Missouri, anytime you get two field goals blocked in a game, I just had kind of the generic thought of, like, the football gods are not going to let us get away with this but no thought even in that moment of, Oh no, Tennessee is doing dumb things again. Um, <laughs> I don't know, you know, other than the infamous Terrence Cody game, I don't know. I've, if I've seen us have a game where we had multiple kicks blocked. So uh, it's, that's a unique kind of thing, but um, it was also, and they touched on this in the uh, broadcast last night, watching Tennessee's defense against Kelly Bryant, you think back to, oh, yeah, Pruitt went against this guy in the playoff, and they completely shut him down basically by doing what they did yesterday, which is we're going to rush three, and we invite you to try to beat us. And, I mean, it, it just it didn't work. At, at no point last night was I worried about Missouri's ability to go the length of the field on Tennessee. They had a very nice touchdown on a, on a nice trick play. That was a good job by Dooley drawing that up and those guys by executing it. Um, but even in the uh, the fourth and one, should we go for this? And instead, they punt it away. I mean, uh, I just didn't have any confidence in their ability to go downfield on Tennessee. So, uh, yeah, it just never felt like Tennessee was playing so well that unlike BYU, a game they controlled throughout, and Mississippi State, a game they controlled throughout, but still were only up three points until that final uh, strike to Tyler Bird. Tennessee was just playing so good on both sides of the ball from start to finish that, yeah, I, I never felt like Tennessee's going to lose this game. Tennessee was, was doing some dumb things, but I just felt like they were playing way too well to not overcome those dumb things. And the offense and the passing game, as we've talked about, were playing so well in particular that even if Missouri scored to go up 27-24, I mean, I felt like they're going down the field and getting at least three points. I, I would have had some O's if they had to kick another field goal. But uh, I, I, the the ability to get in range for that field goal if they needed to or to score a touchdown to win, you just had to, had to feel so good about that at that point. So, yeah, I think unless something – and we've seen plenty of unthinkable this season, but unless the unthinkable happens against Vanderbilt where Tennessee is currently a 20-point favorite – um, I think the Onos are on hold until uh, one Charlotte manifests them for us in the season opener next year, or two we play the Gators, uh, where the Onos you know are are most active. So uh, <laughs> un unless something very unusual happens, which is not impossible because we've already seen it this year, I think the next time we'll hear the Onos, uh, we'll have a chance to hear the Onos will be against the Gators. You are so right about that. Th those. They're like on the sidelines over there, dressed in orange and blue. 
Yeah. Yeah. Got to have something good happen in the first quarter. That's that's just unless you want to do something weird like 2016 and, and get down three scores and then come back. You know, <laughs> you need something good to happen against those guys. Yeah. We've got a year to worry about that. But yeah, for now, yeah, I, I think it's on hold until then. We haven't talked much about the defense, but there's just one play that I remember. It was sort of late in the game. And I have to, I have to say, too, I woke up at like 4.30 yesterday morning uh, with like some sort of weird pain in my gut. And it kept me down like all day. So I, I, was, I had my eyes open and uh, pointed toward the TV all day. Uh, but uh, my memory of what have what actually happened may be a little suspect. So anyway, I do remember this one play um, where it was just a, you know, we were talking about how they, how they took care of Kelly Bryant. It was a corner blitz and he rushed him, but he, he didn't get him. Um, but he did like move him up in the pocket to, you know, to escape. And they he chased him right into the arms of a delayed rush by uh toe, toe, I think. Yep. Um, yep. Love that play. And, 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 you know, I'd love to give those guys the credit for that, but that just has to be Pruitt. I mean, that was just a brilliant design, you know, love that. Yeah, it was uh, in part, it was just a perfect call against uh, they called it a, a QB counter on the broadcast. I don't know if Bryant was actually running a QB counter or if it was the blitz off the corner that made him, you know, step up in that kind of way. But yeah, I mean, he's Pruitt is an excellent defensive mind. He's a good football mind. We saw it on the on the fake punt that he saw that coming, and Tennessee, you know, just yeah. missed stopping it. That's something else. I mean, again, this is a game Tennessee could have won and should have won probably by three touchdowns. And when you get two field goals blocked and you fumble at the twenty-eight yard line, and the other team runs a trick play and a fake punt, uh, I mean, there's there's a whole list of kitchen sink stuff from Missouri. And they still lost. Uh, but, you know, credit Missouri on, on to some level for that because, again, it's, it's a game Tennessee should have won this thing by 17 or 21 points, I think. I haven't seen Bill Connolly's, you know, what what's the uh, the win percentage or, or the expected win percentage after the game is over. But, I mean, man, uh, pretty high for Tennessee. I was wrong about this the last time. I thought Kentucky would have had a better chance to win against Tennessee, and instead it was Tennessee by like 84%. So maybe I'm just fundamentally misunderstanding it and I'll have it wrong this time too. But yeah, I mean, that feels like a game Tennessee wins 90 plus percent of the time. All right. Bowl games. Uh, we've talked about them sort of hypothetically on earlier podcasts, but now that it's a reality, what are you thinking as far as bowls? What's your best guess as to location and uh, opponent? Tennessee loses to Vanderbilt. All bets are off in terms of location. Lose to Vanderbilt, and we're Music City, Liberty, Belk. All bets are off. Tennessee beats Vanderbilt. I have a very hard time seeing how it is not the Gator Bowl. And the main reason why is because Texas A&M played in that game last year. If Even in a best-case scenario, best-case scenario being Georgia beats LSU and they both make the playoff, so you get two SEC teams in the playoff, Alabama goes to the Sugar Bowl. Uh, then you also get Florida chosen as uh, an additional at-large New Year's Six team. Or Georgia loses a very close game to LSU, and Georgia, Alabama, and Florida all get selected to the New Year's Six. Both of those are possible. Um, if all of that happens, Auburn would go to the Citrus Bowl. And then the SEC can say whatever they like about the next six bowls all being equal, but it's just not the case. The Outback Bowl and the Gator Bowl, which are two January 1 bowls, the Gator Bowl is actually January 2nd this year, uh, are, are just higher in the pecking order. And Tennessee and Texas A&M, if Tennessee beats Vanderbilt, Tennessee and Texas A&M are just so on such higher footing right now than Kentucky uh, or Missouri if their bowl ban is overturned. And that's it. Nobody else is going to get to six wins we're even talking about Ole Miss at five and seven. If there aren't enough six and six teams in the world, could a five and seven Ole Miss team squeeze in there? Mississippi State, uh, I think, can still get to to six. But again, are they going to be more desirable than Tennessee or Texas A&M? Absolutely not. So if you're choosing between Tennessee and Texas A&M, and Texas A&M just played in the Gator Bowl last year, then to me it seems very certain that Texas A&M is going to go to the Outback Bowl, and Tennessee is going to go to the Gator Bowl. 
Um, I, I have seen um, Jason Kirk does better bowl projections than anyone I've seen at SB Nation Banner Society. He still has Tennessee and Charlotte at the Belk Bowl. Um, I just don't I, I don't get that. I don't understand that. Um, unless it's some blind belief that they really, the conference office is somehow secretly pretending that the Belk Bowl is the same as the Outback Bowl or the Gator Bowl when it's just not. So um, I, the, the ESPN guys, one has Tennessee in the Gator Bowl against Michigan. Uh, and I'll, let me talk about that in a second. Um, one really interesting scenario that I had not seen until today um, was the other. Uh, so Schleyball had Tennessee in the, um, in the Gator Bowl against Michigan. The other guy, and I apologize, I can't remember his name, that's doing bowl projections for ESPN now. He had Texas in, or he had Texas A&M in the Texas Bowl playing Texas. So that is one scenario where Texas A&M might be inclined to not want to go to the Outback Bowl as much as they'd like to go to the Texas Bowl and play Texas again. So if that happened, then Tennessee could get to the Outback Bowl where he's got him playing uh, Penn State in that projection. But uh, to me, the Gator Bowl seems like the overwhelming favorite. Even if you have weirdness up above uh, Tennessee, where the SEC doesn't get um, – the, the most likely weirdness is LSU beats Georgia, Alabama and Georgia get in the New Year's Six. But let's say Penn State is ranked higher than Florida in the final poll, and so Penn State – goes to the Cotton Bowl and Florida gets left out. Then Florida falls to the Citrus Bowl. Then you've got Auburn, Tennessee, and Texas A&M. Again, Texas A&M just played in the Gator Bowl last year. So if tradition holds and the Outback Bowl really gets first choice, they're going to take Auburn. And if the Gator Bowl is deciding between Tennessee and Texas A&M, they're still going to take Tennessee. So that's a worst-case scenario screws over Texas A&M way more than it screws over Tennessee uh, in my mind. So, uh, and, and people smarter than me, uh, media folks who are smarter than me, seem to think that this Gator Bowl is, is by far the, the easiest possibility as well. Um, the thing about who you play, it's important to remember that the Big Ten has a unique bowl arrangement with its bowls where they have a signed contract with, with written language that says, it's our desire to each of these bowls that we're connected with, the Big Ten, Citrus Bowl, Outback Bowl, Gator Bowl, Holiday Bowl, maybe one more. Their desire is to send five different teams to those bowl games in six years. The SEC has no kind of agreement like that. They're not going to send Texas A&M two years in a row. But what that means is if a Big Ten team has played in one of these bowl games recently, there is a very, very strong literal contractual probability that they won't go there again. So, for instance, if you're seeing Tennessee versus Iowa in the Gator Bowl, whoever's making that projection has not read those rules because Iowa has been to the Gator Bowl far too frequently. If Tennessee is going to the Gator Bowl, they almost certainly will not be playing Iowa there. Um, Michigan has not been to the Gator Bowl recently, which is why they become a very attractive solution there. Um, if Tennessee found their way to, say, the Outback Bowl, Penn State does become a, an attractive solution there. But um, Tennessee-Iowa is kind of a, a, a lazy bowl projection in the Gator Bowl. It's just it seems very unlikely given the Big Ten's contract. There's one more weird factor where if a Big Ten team gets into the Orange Bowl, uh, which this would be Penn State in that situation, then the ACC can have a little more say over these kinds of bowls. So uh, somebody out there has a projection with Virginia Tech in the Gator Bowl. Um, so if, if a Big Ten team lands in the Orange Bowl, some of these bowls where we're thinking about Big Ten teams can become ACC teams. That's a little muddier. But I, that is a very long, uh, convoluted answer to say I think there is an extraordinarily high possibility that Tennessee is, is going to the Gator Bowl. And I think there is a very good chance that they will not play Iowa when they get there. And so now you're really introducing Tennessee, Michigan as a very real possibility. Wisconsin uh, could also be in that mix. Uh, Minnesota, if very bad things happen to them against Wisconsin, could fall down that far. Big Ten, a lot like the SEC with haves and have-nots. Ohio State's going to make the playoff. Penn State should handle business this week. They should be 10-2 and two with a shot at a New Year's Six game. 
Minnesota and Wisconsin, both good. They're going to play each other this week. Winner gets Ohio State. Uh, one of those teams should have a shot to make the New Year's Six. Michigan be 9-3 and three if they lose to Ohio State this week. And Iowa, again, Tennessee's not going to run into those guys in the Gator Bowl, but Iowa also is is a little underrated, I think. They have a lot of close losses. So you've, you've really got those six teams, Ohio State, Michigan, Minnesota, uh, Wisconsin, Penn State, and Iowa, that are all really good, all ranked, uh, all capable of, of, of playing competitive games with great teams because they've played competitive games with each other. Uh, and then there's a real drop-off uh, after that. SEC, same things. You you got five really strong teams, and then you got te- Tennessee and Texas A&M that are that clear next tier. So uh, if, if it's a Big Ten team, any one of those teams for Tennessee should be a ranked opportunity uh, in, in a bowl game. And, you know, it's more exciting to play, you know, Michigan than to play Northwestern or, or some of these teams Tennessee's run into in the past. But a ranked opportunity in a bowl game it's just a nice chance for Tennessee to, to level up and to see if, if they've got what it takes to beat a team on a little higher level than what they've seen here at the end of the regular season. So basically, when it comes to bowl games, we're, we're looking at assuming a win over Vandy, um, that <clears throat> it's basically going to be the same kind of bowl that we uh, were in when we were in our last two best bowls, the Tax Slayer, Gator, and uh, what was the other one, the Outback? It, yeah, is the Outback uh, perceived better than the Gator? I would say yes. The, the Gator is older and more traditional, but the Outback, the old SEC pecking order before they did this group of six thing that they're doing now, in the old order, the Outback Bowl had a higher. You the Outback Bowl chose before the Gator Bowl, so in the eyes of the conference, it was the more prestigious bowl, and in the eyes of the Big Ten, I, I think it's still kind of the the same way. So. It made sense in those two games. That Northwestern team wasn't necessarily very good, but they were a top 15 team that Tennessee played in the Outback Bowl, whereas the Iowa team in 2014 uh, was lesser known. Um, and, and sometimes that can happen if you have a down year. Texas A&M played NC State in the Gator Bowl last year and rolled them. So if we do get weirdness, if Penn State makes the Orange Bowl and the ACC breaks that way, the Gator Bowl could be uh, the loser of the Virginia Tech-Virginia game on Saturday that's going to decide the Coastal. Um, so, that, you know, there are still some possibilities if weird things happen to get to the Gator Bowl and play a team that is, is regionally more appealing, especially if you live in, in this part of the world, um, but nationally less so. So, yeah, I mean, that that's... Um, when Tennessee has gone bowling in, in this hiatus here really since 2008 um other than the two trips to the music city bowl tennessee's still an attractive pick they still went to the the peach bowl the chick-fil-a bowl in 2009 when they were seven and five under lane kiffin they got the gator bowl at six and six in 2014 when everybody thought i mean i i hit publish on a piece at rocket top talk that said hey they're going to the liberty bowl to play west virginia because phil Steele and some other people said that's what was going to happen and then surprise surprise the Gator Bowl took them because Tennessee has a great fan base, a great following, good TV audience, all that stuff. And all of that, again, is why I'm just convinced the, the Outback or the, well, the Outback and the Gator Bowl are not passing over Tennessee to take Kentucky or Mississippi State uh, or, or any, you know, of those other teams. So, um, you know, you, you could see even if, like, if LSU beats Texas A&M by 100 or something like that, if that game is non-competitive this weekend, then maybe, you know, the the if the Outback Bowl holds enough sway, maybe they just don't want any part of Texas A&M and they go somewhere else uh, and and uh, the Outback Bowl lobbies successfully for Tennessee and the Gator Bowl takes somebody else and A&M really gets screwed in that situation. But, again, that makes less sense. It just makes more sense to me to see them go to Tampa because they were in Jacksonville last year and then Tennessee go to Jacksonville. So it seems like it's not just Tennessee fans that are feeling good about Tennessee. It's sort of a national perception that <clears throat> that the team's uh, recent little run um, isn't just a little run, but that it's more a sign of things that are uh, the, a sign of thing sign that things are turning around. Um, that's definitely how I feel. Uh, you know, it's it's like this is just the beginning of of sort of a long bend in the road. Um, 
So how, how are you feeling? Is this, when, when was the last time you felt this good about the, about the program? Uh, I think, you know, obviously all of us are feeling pretty good going into the Alabama game in 2016. You know, uh, that's that's going to be kind of a default answer for people where even after you lose to Texas A&M in a couple overtimes, Tennessee's still ranked ninth when they're playing Alabama that week. Uh, you're still in the driver's seat in the SEC East at that point in time. We look back at it now and say, you know, man, they, they obviously barely beat Appalachian State barely beat uh, a, a not great Georgia team in Kirby Smart's first year, and the wheels were going to fall off later in that season. But in the moment, you know, the, the answer to that in part is going to be the week of that Alabama game until Tennessee gets back into top 15, top 10 kinds of matchups. Uh, I, and I think the year before, uh, we've talked about this some, that, you know, these these big wins that Tennessee had in 2016, they're a little tainted because of what happened the rest of the year. So, like, the longest-lasting untainted memories are some weird games uh, from this decade. And to me, one of them is, is that Northwestern bowl game, where when Tennessee housed Northwestern in that bowl game, it set up eight months of, can Tennessee win the national championship? Can Tennessee win the SEC? That, that they earned. Uh, you know, they, that was a rightful sort of entry, rite of passage into the national conversation in a way that Tennessee had not been there in, in whatever, eight years at that point. So uh, I, I felt good about things after the Outback Bowl um, in 2015. In terms of like at the end of a regular season and, and that sort of thing, um, the Dobbs uh, coming in in 2014, that team still lost to Missouri and struggled with Vanderbilt uh, in the last game of the year before they played Iowa. So, you know, maybe then – I think otherwise it's the comparison we keep making in, in this run is, is the Tyler Bray thing where when Tyler Bray came in at the end of 2010 and at that point, Tennessee had only been gone for a couple of years. Um, you felt like, okay, this team, this group of players, all these guys are freshmen. You got AJ Johnson and Kurt Majit that are getting ready to come in the next year. Like you've, you've got great players they can really get the job done. Uh, so, you know, in, in one sense, the answer to that might be 2010, uh, going back that far. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's been a while. What do you have a, do you have an answer to that? Do you have a version of that? No, uh, it's gotta be 2016, uh, going into Texas A&M. But yeah. like you said, that the bottom fell out after that. Um, just, I was still doing the store at that time and that was the best month that we'd ever had. And, sure. uh, just the bottom fell out totally in sales. I mean, even Christmas wasn't good at that point. Just so. excited about Nebraska and the Music City Bowl. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, that's going to do it for uh, this episode of the Game Day on Rocky Top podcast. Uh, we appreciate you tuning in. Do us a favor. Subscribe. Give us a rating. Leave a review. Um, I do have uh, a new uh, favorite commenter <laughs> on the Apple podcast. I don't know if you've seen this one yet, uh, Will. But it's from somebody uh, called K. Fabian, which probably means something to you, but not to me, because I was duped last week. So I decided to look this one up, and it's an inside uh, inside joke on wrestling. But Correct. anyway, it's a real it's a real comment. So um, <clears throat> um, so props to uh, K. Fabian. <laughs> it says uh, Will and Joel, awesome show, great job. Really enjoy listening to you both discuss falls football and basketball. You guys do a great job pointing out things often overlooking games and bring interesting stats pertinent to the current landscape of the SEC and college football. The money quote, though, is I came for the Vols discussion, but stayed for the wrestling talk. So shout out to uh, Kay Fabian. And if you don't know what that means, like I didn't, you can go. Uh, that's Wikipedia is your friend. So. Yes, but it, in the spirit of the uh, of the name, a very genuine uh, and real comment uh, there. So uh, that's uh, thank you uh, for that. And uh, we are taping this during Survivor Series. If anybody is, uh, I, I have the Sunday night football game on, but I do know that Survivor Series is happening currently. So uh, lots of lots of good uh, sports stuff happening uh, at. Uh, at the moment, my favorite is uh, the there, there's been great articles. Uh, do you watch The Mandalorian? Are you are you into? I, I have not seen that. I've seen just the ads. OK, yeah. so uh, the, the guy, uh, Werner Herzog, that is a 
documentary filmmaker, director, that sort of stuff. This German guy that plays a part of the Mandalorian who hilariously like has never seen Star Wars <laughs> or they, they asked him uh, if he was nervous about working with John Favreau, who directed Iron Man and all these other really famous things. And he was like, I haven't seen any of his other movies, which makes him really interesting to play in Star Wars. But then simultaneously, this dude like loves WrestleMania. <laughs> and so it's like his slice of entry into American life, which is not a bad slice of entry into uh, into American life. So, uh, yes, uh, any time uh, we, we could do an entertaining podcast, I'm sure, about uh, uh, my extensive wrestling background and your uh, not at all wrestling background uh, makes for <laughs> makes for so good job you by by looking that up. I was getting ready to really enjoy it and to be like, no, actually, that's not a real person either. But well, yeah. well done there with kayfabe. Fool, fool me once. And yes. so I got to ask you uh, one more question. Did did you forget to make your picks this week? Uh, yes, yes. <laughs> we had an out of town wedding. Uh, I've, so I'm in like 64th place uh, in the in the picks contest. So, uh, yes. Uh, sorry. <laughs> for, <laughs> I was like, you know, the dude that sets up the, sets up the I, pool, uh, didn't, yeah. didn't submit his picks. I, I don't know if you saw my comment on it, but I was like, the dude's either got problems or priorities. One of the two. So. <laughs> well, it's, I always pick based on what is best for Tennessee and because what was best for Tennessee back in September seemed like the season just ending. Uh, I have not had a good relationship with it. I really enjoy picking the games. I really enjoy decide like when you, I did this today when you like the first 15 or so are easy and then you have to decide, all right, what other four games am I going to throw in here? Uh, I, so I threw in uh, Georgia state and Georgia Southern Georgia state could finish like nine and three or yeah. eight and four, something uh -huh. like that. So I, I threw that in there this week. Uh, BYU as well. Also with San Diego state, BYU uh, could get to seven wins. So, you know, not, uh, not bad for, for two teams that beat Tennessee in September. <laughs> That's right. All right. For uh, Will Shelton, I'm Joel Hollingsworth. This has been the Game Day Rocket Top Podcast. <laughs>